welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. Um, It is so good to be with you guys. Um, I'm usually in the gym wearing sneakers, playing dodgeball and donuts, and I love that. Um, But today it's like a fun uh, mixing up the scene a little bit. Um, As Darren has already shared during announcements today, we start Advent as a church. Um, I really do um, invite you guys to join us in the Advent devotional. This year we're going to go through on Sundays as well as each week four key Christmas words, um, hope, peace, joy, and love. And um, Advent is a Latin word meaning um, to com- the coming or arrival. It's our time as a church to intentionally make room for God's presence on Sundays as well as in our ordinary everyday life. So please use the Advent devotional. Um, it's going to be great. Um, today, we are going to start with the Advent word hope. And I have been praying, and if anything else today, my prayer is that we will be reminded that God is faithful to his promise. And we're going to start looking um, at Luke chapter 1. You can turn there now, and we will start with verse 5. Let me pray for the word. God, I thank you that your word is alive and that it speaks to us. So God, would, um, yeah, would you, through the power of your Holy Spirit and through your word, transform us in this message? Amen. Luke 1, verse 5. Now I have to turn there, too. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So immediately we're introduced to this guy named Zechariah. And the text tells us that Zechariah is a priest, um, that he belongs to a certain division of priests. And all the different divisions of the Levite priests would take turns being on duty to oversee and care for the temple. And so Zechariah's division is on duty. And essentially, all of the men there would like draw straws to see who would go into the temple and burn incense. And so we're told that it's by chance that Zechariah is chosen and goes into the temple to burn incense to the Lord. We're also told that Zechariah is married to a woman named Elizabeth. And according to the text, it says they are very old. Um, Not sure how old that is, but... It was important to note that they were very old. And the thing is, is in this time, for a woman to not be able to conceive, not able to have a child, she would have been seen as cursed by God. I'm sure many people in her community even made assumptions about what kind of sin in her life would have caused her to not be able to have a child. But what I love about the author of Luke is in Luke, um, unlike, well, the other Gospels too, but more than any of the other Gospels, Luke has the most mentions of women and is always honoring to them. And here in Scripture, 
we see that the author of Luke intentionally says that both Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous and blameless in the sight of God. So we know that this um, reason that she doesn't have a family, this reason she hasn't been blessed with a child, isn't because of sin or a curse in her life. Um, We see that, that they are both faithful to God. Let's continue reading in verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, no kombucha, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the, to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What the heck is happening? <laughs> Zechariah goes in. It's his one shot to burn incense. And as he's doing that, an angel appears in front of him. How many of you have ever seen an angel? Okay, I think it happens, but I would be terrified. And uh, the text tells us that he's gripped with fear. And this angel announces to him that he is going to have a child and that the child is going to be the one who the prophets have said will prepare a way for the Messiah. The angel tells Zechariah that the Lord has heard his prayer. What prayer? Well, first, I think it's showing that God has heard Zechariah and Elizabeth's long prayer for a child. Their long prayer for a child. And again, the text said they're very old. So how long do you think Zechariah and Elizabeth were praying for a child? 20 years? 30 years? 40 years? They were very old. And they were just waiting for God to hear their prayer and bless them with a child. And they didn't give up. How incredible. Too often I give up when I pray and I don't see results in like a week. (laughs) True, sorry. (laughs) Maybe some of us need this reminder to not give up. And that God hears your prayers. He does. He hears your prayers. And we see in this elderly couple that prayed and then they waited and then they persevered and then they prayed some more and waited some more for a child. Um, The angel, though, is also referring not just to Zechariah and Elizabeth's personal prayer, but to the people of Israel's corporate prayer. The people of Israel, God's chosen people, had been praying for a Messiah, praying um, for God to send Jesus. Zechariah, as a devout Jew, would have been clinging on to that promise that God would one day save his people and establish God's kingdom here on earth. How kind of our God that he cares about our personal prayers and he cares about our corporate prayers. Perhaps they're even connected. 
And maybe when we trust God with our personal prayers, and we don't give up praying for the things that we wanna see in our own lives, and um, as we pray for those things, we will also see our church's prayers answered. We'll also see our nation's prayers answered. Maybe they're even connected, because Zechariah's personal prayer for a child was connected to God's plan to redeem all things through sending the one to prepare a way. So maybe renewal happens when our personal prayers align with God's prayer, God's plan to redeem all things. The other thing happening here is everything the angel Gabriel says to Zechariah is directly connected to the fulfillment of the prophet Malachi. Okay, we're gonna go Old Testament. So turn to the left, Malachi chapter four, and look at verse five and six. And as you turn there to Malachi chapter four, I also wanna point out that earlier, Malachi prophesied that, um, that this, this, there would be someone to come to prepare the way for the Messiah. And then here in verse five and six, we read these last words of the prophet Malachi, the last words of the Old Testament. Malachi four, five, and six. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. These are the words that Gabriel spoke to Zechariah. These are the exact fulfillment of what the prophet Malachi said. And it's But the thing is, is in Malachi after, this very word from God, there was 400 years of silence. 400 years of waiting for this prophecy to be fulfilled. 400 years where God did not speak to his people. No visions, no dreams, no encounters with the Holy Spirit, just silence. So here you have God saying this incredible big promise that he's going to rescue his people, but God's people are in this 400 year period of waiting, waiting for the arrival of this fellow Israelite who's going to prepare the way of the Messiah. God says he will come, but then immediately there's 400 years of nothing. God's people are waiting for him to speak. God's people are waiting for his word to be fulfilled. And I can't help but wonder how many of the Israelites gave up waiting. For those who remained faithful, I wonder what they thought God's first word to his people would be and how he would show up. And so here, back to Luke 1, God shows up. God speaks. He speaks to Zechariah, a priest who was chosen by chance, to enter the temple to burn incense. And just like that, the 400 years of silence, over. God has heard the prayers of his people. God has heard Zechariah's prayer for a child. And the thing is, is if God was gonna show up anywhere, wouldn't you think it would be in the temple with people literally there on duty to worship and um, burn incense and to pray? This would be the place that all these devout um, Jews, these devout God's people, they would be wait, that would be the place for him to show up. But we see that Zechariah's response in verse 18 is shaped by the 400 years of silence. The 400 years 
of waiting. His response is shaped by a culture of despair when he says in verse 18, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. God finally speaks to his people and we miss it. We doubt, we question it. And so fast forward, the angel silences Zechariah. He silences his mouth. He's unable to speak until the birth of his son, John. And after he is born, Zechariah's family insists that he name, that the boy be named after his father, Zechariah, as custom. But his father, Zechariah, refuses. And in verse 63, the story ends with this. He asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he, Zechariah, wrote, his name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free. And he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe. And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Elizabeth and Zechariah is more than just a miraculous birth story. It's a story of God being faithful to his promise. It's a story of waiting, praying, waiting, and waiting some more. In short, it's a story of hope. But when I say a story of hope, I think we all have different definitions of the word hope. I actually think that we use the word hope almost as carelessly as we toss around the word love. Like I can say, I love Chipotle burritos, and I can also say, I love my husband Matt. But clearly, those are two different loves, right? Some days. But we say hope like, I hope you feel better. I hope to see you tomorrow. I hope I pass this test. Or for me right now, I hope I don't mess up <laughs> or like trip on the stage. But biblical hope, what we see in the scripture is that hope is not wishful thinking. It's not uh, fingers crossed, something good might happen. It's not optimism. If it was, this would have been a much easier talk to prepare because of a, about a month ago, he gave me some time. Darren asked um, if I would speak on hope. And I thought, hope? Yeah, I can speak on hope. That's like optimism. And I'm really optimistic. I'm extroverted. If you talk to any of the teens that have been to summer camp with me, they say I smile in my sleep. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. And I'm not saying I'm always happy. Like, I'm not, but I'm a pretty optimistic, like excited, we can make this happen kind of person. I'm a seven on the Enneagram. I was like, yeah, I can do hope. Like, this is good, everything is awesome. <laughs> but hope is not optimism. And God spoke to me so much over this month about hope. And I was humbled as I was preparing this and discovering what hope was. And I have to tell you, it's so much better than optimism. And this is good news if anyone out there is not an optimist. 
God is not looking for optimists. He is looking for people who trust his word and he's looking for people who trust his character. He's looking for men and women to stand up in the midst of unfavorable circumstances when the odds are stacked against them to say, God can work all things to good. So it's not about circumstances, it's not about being an optimist. It's about trusting God, trusting his character, trusting his word. So our casual everyday use of the word hope is kind of watered down the true meaning. It's not really useful right now. Um, And it's definitely distorted our biblical view of hope. And so what is biblical hope? Well, in the Old Testament, there are two um, words that are used the most for the word hope. And they're two Hebrew words, both of them meaning to wait. The two words used are kava and yakal. Okay, here's my youth pastor visual. It's good, yeah. The word kava comes from the word kav, which means cord or string or strand, right? This is a string. It came from my Christmas box because I also put up my Christmas tree. Well, my husband put up our Christmas house lights. I did the Christmas tree. Okay, this is a string. And the word kav comes from the word cord. Um, And it comes from the idea of when you're pulling on a string, when you're pulling on it, there's so much tension until there's relief. And that's kava. That feeling of tension and anticipation as you wait for something, that's kava. And doesn't that accurately describe the like painful feeling of waiting? Like whether you're at Disneyland waiting in line for like your favorite ride or a scary roller coaster and you have butterflies in your belly, and there's all this like tension as you anticipate what's to come. Or if you're like anxiously waiting the results of a test or a medical procedure to come back and there's just this tension until you know. Or it's like this playful waiting like children on Christmas morning because there are presents at Christmas, it's fun. (laughs) Waiting, (laughs) it's about Jesus, but there are presents. I'm like, as children, like, waiting to open up presents on Christmas morning, there's this exciting waiting. So regardless of what we're waiting for or the reason we're waiting, it's this tension, this anticipation. And I think our bodies know that. It's like our bodies do something while we're waiting. We tap our feet. Maybe we get knots in our stomach. Um, Maybe some of us have a hard time eating or sleeping when we know that there's um, something big we're waiting for or anticipating. Who thinks waiting is really hard? I think waiting is so hard. I'm relatively impatient. And what I don't want you to hear is that waiting will get easier because I'm not really convinced it will. (laughs) But um, I do believe that as Christians, as Jesus followers, we have to get good at waiting. So it doesn't mean it's gonna get easier, but I think we have a lot of work to do in getting good at waiting. We're annoyed when we call a business and we get placed on hold, or when they don't even say hi and they just say, please hold. We shamelessly use the skip intro button on Netflix because we just can't wait to watch the next episode. Unless it's Friends, you have to listen to the Friends theme, theme song. 
I've been tempted to skip that intro, but come on, guys. I won't sing it, but you guys can. But we are told in Scripture to wait, to remember. And we can see that the Israelites waited in silence for 400 years. The Israelites were also enslaved to Egypt for 400 years. These Hebrew words, to wait, are used over 40 times in the book of Psalms. Turn to Psalm 130, verse 5. It'll be on the screen, too. I know we're jumping around a lot in the scripture. I will wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the watchman waiting for the morning, more than watchman waiting for the morning. Israel, church, put your hope in the Lord. For the Lord is, un, is with unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. This psalm is not based on optimism. This psalm isn't based on surveying the circumstances and seeing, oh yeah, things could work out for us. No, this psalm is based on God's character, on his faithfulness on his unfailing love, and on his plan for full redemption. It's based on his past faithfulness that shapes how God's people will view their future. We see God's people anticipating for him to move, praying that he will come to redeem Israel from all their sins. And this was not because of pleasant circumstances, but because they knew who their God was. And when we are in impossible situations, we can follow the example of God's people. We can remember that God is true to his word. So when you're in a difficult season of waiting and not sure what your, not sure what your future holds, you can look back on the ways that God has been faithful in your life and allow that to shape the way that you take your next step forward. And when you're having a really difficult time doing that, we can look to the Bible. We can look to God's word to see his faithfulness to see the countless stories where God made a way for his people when there was no way. We can look at the times where giants fell, where seas were split, where people were raised from the dead, and when Jesus had an empty tomb. So if you are having a hard time looking in your own life for the ways you've seen God to be faithful, go to the word, and you will see that God is faithful. So, wow. In the Old Testament, we see these words, these Hebrew words meaning to wait for God. The New Testament is also filled with hope. In the New Testament, the word hope is elpis, a Greek word. And when it's used in the New Testament, it's often connected to the resurrection of Jesus. Again, like the Old Testament, this word hope is connected to God's faithfulness but it's God's faithfulness through the person of Jesus. And so in the New Testament, there, um, the authors write often that we have a living hope. And it's referring to the resurrected reigning King Jesus, that he is our hope. So while the Old Testament is looking forward to God's arrival to Jesus, the New Testament remembers 
God's faithfulness through the person of Jesus. That he came, that he was with us, that he defeated death on the third day. And as the church, we can wait and anticipate for the final redemption of all things. We can wait for Jesus' second coming. So when our lives seem hopeless, we can look to the resurrection, in Jesus, to G, the resurrection of Jesus in order to look forward to what is to come. Remembering that on the third day, Jesus conquered death. And so nothing is impossible for him. He has promised to redeem all things. No circumstance that we are in is impossible for him. So throughout scripture, hope points to Jesus. Jesus is our hope. In his book, Life Without Lack, Dallas Willard writes, got Dallas Willard in here, Darren. (laughs) Big fan. There is a family of words in the New Testament that are variously translated as belief, faith, and hope. And what they all have in common is the notion of reliance, confidence, and trust. It is trust that puts you in contact with God so that you can draw upon his unlimited and inexhaustible resources. Goes on to say the faith of desperation, trusting faith, digs in, holds on, clings tight, and says, I don't care what's going to happen. I am holding on to God. The life without lack is known by those who have learned how to trust God in the moment of their need. In the moment of their need. Not before the moment of need, not after the moment of need when the storm has passed, but in the moment of need. What Willard is getting at here is that this word hope, like faith and belief, are connected to trust. That is far more powerful than wishful thinking of a potential outcome. When we say Jesus is our hope and that our hope is in Jesus, what we're really saying is that we trust him. We are saying that we will cling to him And this trust is something that Dallas Willard points out that we don't necessarily learn or develop before we need it or after we need it, but in the moment when we need it. Real hope is found in the moment of need. And so this means we can be totally unsure of our future. We can be totally unsure of where our life is headed. Yet, we can be fully sure and confident of who God is. We can trust him even when we don't know the answers to some of life's biggest questions, some of our biggest desires. Will I have a family? Will this new company be successful? Will I ever get a job? Will I ever move out of the shelter? Will that relationship ever be restored? Will I ever marry? Paul writes in Romans that we become people of hope through our suffering. If you turn to Romans 5, we read, 
We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hope is connected to our suffering, our disappointment, uncertainty, and sadness. It's in those unfortunate seasons of life that we become people of hope. As we persevere through our suffering, clinging on to Jesus, that's when we become people of hope. Not before, not after, but in the moment of our pain, in the moment of our need. Now, like many of you, I have experienced significant loss, whether it is a loss of a loved one or I've walked with people in tremendous pain. It's so hard, especially when it's like a teenager. Um, But my um, personal journey of trusting God was really challenged a couple years ago. So before I was on staff here at the Garden, I worked at Nordstrom. Any shop, anyone do any shopping this weekend? A little bit? It's like, you don't have to be embarrassed. It's okay. It's all right. Um, I used to like not really ever enjoy Thanksgiving because I had to work at like 6 a.m. the next day. But I used to work at Nordstrom. I worked there for eight years. I loved it. I loved the clothes, the people, customer service. It's great. Um, But while I worked at Nordstrom, I started when I was in college, I always volunteered with Young Life, with an organization that reaches kids on campus. And so, like, discipling teens has been something that God has called me to since I started following him. So, um, a few years ago, four years this spring, um, the garden needed a youth pastor. They were looking for someone to oversee the youth ministry. And the position posted in January, And a lot of people that kind of knew me and knew my passion to work with teens said, you would be perfect for this. You should totally apply for this. You're always with teens anyways. True. Um, But I was thinking to myself, no way. I have an amazing job. I love my job. I was managing at South Coast Plaza. It's great. Yeah, that's the big one. Um, (laughs) And just loving it, I had a great salary, benefits, 401k, ladies. I got like three pairs of premium denim for free every month. Like, it was great. I, why did I leave? Um, and so when this position opened up and everyone was like, you should apply for it, I thought There's, that doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't. Like, I can volunteer with teens and I can get my free denim. But um, it just kept, like, pressuring on me. And I'm like, my closet's a little light. Um, It's not. I'm very thankful. A lot of them still fit me. Okay, focus. (laughs) Now I'm preaching about denim. Um, It didn't make any sense. Um, The garden um, at the time was hiring for, like, a 10 to 12-hour position um, to oversee youth. And uh, 10 to 12 hours, it's great. <laughs> anyway, sorry, but that's not a, 
day I get the position. It just it didn't make sense for me. I was like, no way. And so to share with you that I was slow to apply is an understatement because the position posted in January, I didn't apply until March. <laughs> so anyways, um, it was great. But I felt like God, just, he kept bringing it up and I felt a lot of peace about it. So I talked to my husband, he had a great job. So we kind of cranked some numbers. We're like, all right, you love teens. We love the garden, go for it. I'm like, okay. So I was gonna go take a risk and see if this really was God who was um, kind of nudging me to do this. Well, I applied. That same week, my husband lost his job. So now, all of a sudden, the circumstances definitely did not make sense. There was no way numerically, if we looked at our budget, that we could make this work in the moment but I still felt this calling and this peace. And so what we did was we looked at the circumstances, but we didn't make our decision based on the circumstances. We made our decision based on God's calling, on his promise, and his character. Now, to continue, what I didn't know, spoiler alert, I got the job, <laughs> but, um, I don't know, jury's still out, but. <laughs> I got the job and I started working and um, my husband at the same time was like, I think I want to start my own company. If any of you have ever done that, that's very stressful. <laughs> and so here you have like two people um, that are both doing two very new, very risky, very different um, things than what we were doing originally. And let's just say that that was the hardest time in our marriage, and I was not expecting that. I was like, yes, I answered God's calling, everything should be like happening so smoothly, falling in place, he's gonna have this awesome thing work out, I'm gonna have this awesome thing work out, but it was, it was two years of terribleness and of questioning, like was this even God's voice that I heard? And I, um, yeah, but we, we trusted in God's character, and the reality is, it was in that time, in that suffering, that things in our marriage that needed to be worked on just happened to come up, right? And stress and like tight budget, that's when things come up. Um, so we had to start marriage counseling. Um, but you guys, we celebrated nine years in October. I know I don't look that old. Um, but we got married young. Um, we celebrated nine years in the fall. His new company's doing well. Um, they're launching their product next month. I'll tell you about it later. Um, and this part-time, 10-hour-a-week gig um, over the years turned into a full-time uh, pastor role. And so we've seen God's faithfulness. And what's incredible is this is a marker in my life where I can look back and know that God will provide for me, that he will provide community, that he will provide friendships, that he will provide financially. There were months where things came in by a dollar. Um, he, he makes a way. And when we are making decisions or deciding what to do, um, we, we can sure look at the circumstances, um, but hope is not putting our trust in the current circumstances. It doesn't matter if the glass looks half empty or half full when it's God, he will make a way in the middle of the circumstances. And Paul said it's our hope 
that is connected to our character that's formed while we're persevering through suffering. I wish just hope came when you were like at a day at Disneyland. But instead, it's formed through persevering through suffering. And so if you are in a difficult season right now, hang on. Trust that God is with you and that he is for you and that he is bigger than your circumstances. Can we also consider what God might be doing with our character in the midst of that suffering? Because if you flip, if you're still tracking in the Bible with me, if you flip to Romans 8, Paul is writing to encourage the Roman church that God is at work in all things. And in Romans 8, 28, Paul writes, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And the next verse we tend to miss says he also predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, don't get too caught up in the word predestined there to miss what Paul is saying. The goal in suffering, in disappointment, in sadness, is for us to become more like Jesus, to be formed in the image of Jesus. That is the working all things to good. What Paul is not saying is that God is causing the suffering and so he can make amazing things happen out of it. No, that's not God's heart. We also know Paul is not saying that God is going to make sure that only good things come your way. But rather what Paul is suggesting is that God could work in any terrible situation to form you to be more like Jesus. And we know that as we become more like Jesus, we become more fully human, more fully ourselves, more fully alive, experiencing that abundant life he promises. God can use any circumstance to make us more like Jesus if we cling on to him and put our hope in him. Do you believe that? About like your current circumstance right now? That God could be using that to shape your character? He can use any situation any work situation, family drama, any relationship, anything to make you more like Jesus. And remember, Jesus is our living hope, he is our hope, and he had to go through unimaginable suffering. It's not the good times that produce this hope, it's the tough times. And so as we wait out the suffering, we can can become either people of hope or we can become people of despair. As we wait in the suffering, we'll either become more hopeful or more doubtful. And I believe that despair is the opposite of hope. And the reality is that we're living in a culture of despair. And when I say a culture of despair, it's despair says things like, things will always be the same. Things will never change. Despair tells you to give up, stop trying, quit praying. God is not with you. And that is far too often what we believe. And I think many of us, if we're being honest, have been in some really hard season right now, and we've allowed the seeds of despair to grow. 
And my prayer when I woke up this morning was that I want God to renew our hope this morning. Where we have been believing the lies of despair, I believe God wants to break through and give us hope. Despair will tell us that the addiction you have right now cannot be broken. So don't try. Despair will tell you that the negative thought life, you will never be able to shake it. That that disease you or your family member have will never be healed. That that broken relationship could never be restored. They could never forgive you. You'll never be able to pay off that much debt and you'll always have that anger problem. Those are those lies of despair that we so easily believe. But as Jesus followers, filled with the Holy Spirit, we can look at these circumstances and sure, say, with man, that is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. We can be people of hope in these situations. What I love is, like, if our church, if we, if I did this, if we could pray God's promises over our city, as we drive or walk through Long Beach and we see the homelessness crisis, or we see people in poverty, or there's, we see and interact with sick people, or even just look at our own lives, when we don't see God's kingdom right now, we can pray and prophesy God's promises that he has spoken over our lives, over our families, over our cities. As Jesus followers, we, we get the privilege, the honor to do that that we know the truth, that we know the end of the story. We know that he has risen and that he is alive. And so we can cling on to that hope and learn, we can read God's promises and we can pray them over our city. And even when we don't see breakthrough, we still trust God, that he is for us and that one day his kingdom will fully be established. And we know God's kingdom brings freedom, healing, restoration, abundance, peace, and joy. And it's really becoming people of hope that you will become a more peaceful person, a more joyful person. Because if you know how the story ends, if you know that Jesus has the final say, then that will affect your anxiety. That will affect the way that you look at the world. If you're people of hope, if we become people of hope, that will change our joy. So we do get glimpses of God's kingdom now. We know that. And we're invited to partner with him to bring more of his kingdom here to Long Beach. And sometimes that means being on our knees in prayer like Zechariah and Elizabeth for years, praying for the same prayers we have yet to see answered. Years of praying for that same family member or that same friend to come to know God's love. Sometimes it's, it's really active like when you're out in the streets, instead of just saying, I hope you feel better, you could pray healing over them and speak God's promise that his desire is to heal. In a culture of despair, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we get to be people of hope and bring hope. And I love this quote. It's not Willard. It's Pope Francis. <laughs> Christian hope is not a ghost, and it does not deceive. 
It's a theological virtue and therefore ultimately a gift from God that cannot be reduced to optimism, which is only human. God does not mislead hope. God cannot deny himself. God is all promise. And I started today by, by saying my prayer, my hope is that, um, that we would be reminded that God is faithful to fulfill his promises. And I love that, that God is all promise. God is promise. But I think, again, that word promise can feel meaningless at times because we live in a broken world that doesn't keep their promises. I was reading the survey, and the best way I've seen this laid out, or played out, is in marriage. I read that in the time it takes for a new couple to exchange vows, I don't know, a couple minutes maybe, um, nine divorces are being filed. And the divorce rate's actually going down, which is great, right? But it's actually because millennials are choosing not to get married in the first place. Because we're surrounded, we, 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 are, we don't believe in people's promises. And I think that as much as we wouldn't like to admit it, that often shapes our view of God. If we can't trust each other's word, each other's promises, how can we trust God's promise? That's a lie. And today, I th- my, my prayer is that we are reminded that God is faithful to his promise. God never breaks his promises. He is true to his word. He is faithful, and you can trust him. Jesus came to bring hope. Jesus is our hope. And I love what Pope Francis said, that hope is a gift. And one thing I know about our good, good, heavenly father is that he loves to give good gifts. And so if hope is a gift, my prayer for us, for Garden Church, is that we would receive this gift of hope this morning. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.